Hey there, poker players. Let's dive into some strategy and level up your skills. I'm Mike Brady, and I'm joined by Scottish poker pro Gary Blackwood. What's up, guys and girls? Today we're talking about flush draws in single raise pots, when to raise them, when to call them, when to check them back, all things flush draws. Now, we can't comprehensively cover how to play this hand class in every situation in one short podcast episode. However, we can give you some key heuristics for the most common spots. We're going to talk about playing flush draws as the preflop raiser and the preflop caller, both in position and out of position. You'll learn which specific flush draw combinations perform best as bets, which flush draws you should check, and key adjustments to make in multi-way pots. We'll be focused on single raised pots specifically, as Gary said. Three bet pots are a little bit of a different animal. Those are going to be saved for another episode. Keep in mind that the specific examples in this episode assume you're playing 100 big blind deep cash with no ante. If you play a different game type, such as tournaments, the general concepts will largely still apply, but the specific hand selection and frequencies won't, so just keep that in mind. Let's start with playing in position as the preflop raiser. In other words, you raise from early or middle or late position and the big blind calls. Gary, can you talk about the factors that impact your decision to either bet or check with a flush draw in those situations? So the first thing we're going to talk about today is unbelievably important, and it's not just specific to the topic that we're discussing today, it's to do with all things poker, and it's something called our global frequency, which is just a fancy term for how often our range wants to bet on a particular board. For example, button versus big blind, single raise pot, queen, seven, deuce, rainbow. Our global frequency is close to 100%. Close enough that we can just simplify and bet our entire strategy. So every category of hand, whether it's a flush draw, top pair, a set, eight high, and so on, they always want to bet. On the flip side, if you've got a board like 643 flush draw, one of the boards that we use regularly in our previous podcast, our global frequency is much lower. So all categories of hands bet less frequently. And that, of course, includes our flush draws. So it's not a case of I have a good flush draw or I have a bad flush draw and I want to do X, Y, Z. The key to getting better at poker is looking at the board, estimating your global frequency, and building your strategy around that for all types of hands, not just your flush draws. Yeah, and Gary referenced our previous episode on how often you should see bet just then, and that episode is going to pair really, really well with this one. If you go back and listen to that one, you're going to hear us list a bunch of different boards and different properties of boards that make them either high-frequency C-bets, middle-frequency C-bets, or low-frequency C-bets. So if you go back and listen to that one, if you hear us talk about a high-frequency C-bet board, that means you're going to C-bet your flush draws at a high frequency too. Similarly, if it's a mid-frequency C-bet board, you're going to be C-betting your flush draws a middling frequency, around half the time or so. And obviously, the low C-bet boards are the same. If you're not supposed to C-bet very often, you're not supposed to C-bet very often with flush draws either. So I think it'd be helpful to zoom in on one of those flops that warrant a mid-to-low C-bet frequency so we can talk about exactly which flush draws like to bet and which prefer to check. I really want to hammer home the properties of what makes a good flush draw to bet and what makes a good flush draw to check on boards where you're supposed to check some and bet others. Suppose the flop is 862 with a flush draw, button versus big blind. Kind of a flop we're supposed to be betting a middling frequency. Which flush draws are you for sure betting, and which ones are the clearest checks? So it's really important to understand that we're betting basically all of our flush draws at some frequency on a board like this, i.e. one of those middle frequency C-bet boards. Obviously, if it's a board like 643, where we're betting very infrequently overall with our entire range, i.e. a low global frequency, there are going to be a lot of flush draws that we just check back virtually always. But on a board like this, we're betting all of our flush draws at some frequency, and obviously we're going to dive now into the flush draws that want to bet more frequently and the flush draws that want to check more frequently. 
So let's start with those uh, flush ones that want to check a little more frequently. And these are going to be your ace-king, ace-queen, ace-jack, king-queen type combos for two reasons. One, they have pretty reasonable showdown value, so they don't want to bet too wide anyway. And two, ace-king blocks more flush draw combos that our opponent can have with the king, which makes it slightly less likely our opponent has an inferior flush draw, which is the dream scenario for us. So if we compare ace-king to ace-three, Ace King blocks, you know, King Six suited, King Seven suited, King Eight suited, and so on and so forth. But when we have Ace Three suited, that three doesn't block anywhere near as many flush draws. So when we're holding Ace Three suited, we have less showdown value, and it's much more likely our opponent has an inferior flush draw. It's also really important to understand that there's a big difference between Queen Jack suited and Ace King suited. So whilst Queen Jack does, of course, block, you know, Jack Ten, Jack Nine, Jack Eight, and you prefer to have Queen Deuce, the fact that Queen Jack has no showdown value. And also as two overcards to the board means that we would always bet a hand like Queen-Jack suited in this scenario. If we quickly change the board to something like 10-9-3, we'll now see our lower flush draws checking at a higher frequency as well. And the reason for this is that 6-4 suited is dominated by way more flush draws. So now our flush draw is inferior. So we don't want to start piling money in with it. We want to be a bit more reserved because the reality is that we might get flush over flushed, which is a disaster for us. But when we have king four suited, that's way less likely. So we play way more aggressively. I don't want to confuse our listeners here and have people start checking ace king of spades on queen six deuce with two spades. Remember, the global frequency is key. And on queen six deuce, we're betting really wide. So ace king bets virtually always. But on a board like 10, 9, 3, 8, 4, 3, 8, 5 deuce, when our global frequency is lower, that's when we need to start finding these checks with ace-king of spades, ace-queen of spades, and so on. Yeah, so you kind of touched on two key factors that go into your decision to bet or check a flush draw, assuming it is a board that you're not just betting everything. Number one, it's your showdown value, right? If you have a hand with showdown value, it generally wants to check a little more, because if the whole hand checks down, it might actually win at showdown, and, and you want to, you know, capitalize on that if possible. The other thing you touched on was the kicker, essentially, and you know the removal effects of that kicker. Does it block a lot of inferior flush draws? If it doesn't, you're a little bit more likely to bet, or a lot more likely to bet, because it's more likely your opponent has one of those inferior flush draws, and that's a dream scenario for you. If the spade rolls off or whatever, you're going to probably stack them. Even if it doesn't, you're going to get some value just by betting, and they're going to call with a worse draw. It's kind of interesting. I think back years ago before we had solvers, and I remember the way a lot of good players played their flush draws is they, they'd actually kind of mess it up a little bit by focusing too much on that showdown value factor where almost every time they had the high flush draw, they would opt to check it because it's like, oh, I have showdown value. You know, I'll, I'll check and, you know, see a turn, whatever. And then when they had the low flush draws, they'd think, oh, well, I don't have showdown value, so I'll bet or I'll check raise or I'll play it fast. And as soon as solvers came out, and I think even before that, you know, the best players were starting to catch on, that's a little bit of a problem, because if you're c-betting with 6-5 suited on, you know, a board where you have a flush draw, a lot of the hands that call are actually better flush draws, so you're just building the pot into a range that has a bunch of better flush draws. Now, that's not to say you're never going to bet, you know, a flush draw with 6-5 suited, but it's just something that we've kind of learned over time, and especially from solvers, that those low flush draws actually want to check more often than the high ones, put simply because they're a worse hand. It's kind of funny how it's just become that simple, right? Like a higher flush draw, you bet more often because it's a better hand. You know, kind of, kind of cool to see the solver focus on something that's, that's so fundamental. All right, time to move on to playing out of position as the preflop raiser. And you're going to start to hear some reiterating throughout these sections because we've kind of covered the main factors and they're going to come up again and again. 
But with that said, how does your flop strategy with flush draws change when you've raised in, say, middle position and were called by the button, so you're out of position as the preflop raiser? It changes drastically, and one of the reasons for that is that we're now out of position, and we're, when we're out of position, we see that way less often, because our opponent is now the in-position player, and they're more likely to float us. So our betting frequency, our global frequency, goes down. When we're out of position, and there are a lot of boards that we're going to talk about here where you know we just check our entire range. Uh, for example, if we open MP and the button calls, on a board that's you know eight high and below, we're supposed to check virtually our entire range, and that means we're checking so much with our flush draws. So we bet less frequently with our flush draws when we're out of position because we're out of position. It's not to do with you know the fact that we have a flush draw. It's to do, again, talking about our global frequency. Our global frequency comes way down. And with that, every hand class, be it 10 high, middle set, top two pair, flush draws, nut flush draws, five high flush draws, everything comes down as a result. Yeah, I mean, you're playing against such a strong condensed range when you raise and someone calls in position. You know, they're going to have a lot of pocket pairs. They're going to have a lot of high card hands. And generally speaking, they're going to call your C-bet on the flop a lot. And you kind of just have to play a defensive strategy. Like Gary said, even with sets, two pairs, over pairs, you have to do a lot of checking out of position in those spots versus those very condensed ranges. So we're going to check a lot. Obviously, sometimes our opponent is going to bet. So Gary, can you kind of walk us through how you then play your flush draws once you've checked and then they bet? So it's actually very consistent with what we've spoken about already in terms of we want to prioritize our nut flush draws and our second nut flush draws with the weaker kickers because we love to flush over flush our opponents or even flush draw over flush draw them when we're raising on the flop. Once again, our weaker flush draws, you know, say for example, we check on a board like 8-5 deuce in MP, button stabs, we're going to raise our, you know, ace-three, ace-four combos way more than a hand like 10-9 suited. 10-9 suited is going to raise sometimes, but nowhere near as often. So the solver is actually very consistent here in terms of we want to raise those nut flush draws and our second nut flush draws along with our combo draws. So on that 8-5 deuce, you know, 10-9 of spades isn't going to raise that much, but 7-6 is actually going to raise quite a lot. The reason those combo draws are an exception to the rule we've just spoken about is because of that extra equity that they've got. They've got an extra few outs, you know, the straight draw to go with the flush draws. Yeah, it's pretty interesting that, you know, your C-betting strategy in position ends up looking a little bit like your check-raising strategy out of position as the preflop raiser, right? Like you're raising those high-low flush draws like the ace-2 suited or whatever. You're raising the combo draws, of course. And that's what's kind of really important. Like we talk about playing defensively as the out-of-position preflop raiser when someone calls you in position. But you only start by playing defensively, right? Like you check, and then if they bet, you got to give them the business sometimes. You know, you got to be doing some check raising. If you're not doing that, then you're kind of letting them print money with their bet. So you start defensively. Then, you know, if they bet, you're going to take it to the street sometimes. You're going to play an aggressive check raising strategy with obviously your value hands, your maybe two pairs, low sets, over pairs, stuff like that. Kind of depends on the board, of course. And then also you're going to balance it out with bluffs, and that's going to include some flush draws. So now that we've covered playing flush draws as the preflop aggressor, let's turn the tables and talk about playing as the preflop caller, starting with out of position. Suppose you defend your big blind versus an in-position player's raise, you check to the aggressor, as you should with your entire range, and they c-bet. Gary, how would you sum up playing flush draws in this spot? So let's talk about our flush draws that want to check raise them most firstly. And again, we're favoring our ace high, king high, queen high flush draws with the lowest kickers for the same reasons we've already stated. We want to dominate our opponent's weaker flush draws. And king deuce of spades dominates more flush draws than king eight of spades, for example. We still raise king eight of spades, but a little more liberally with the king deuce of spades. We also like to check raise our combo draws as well. As already stated, they've got much more equity. So even though they're low flush draws a lot of the time, they do still like to check raise quite aggressively. 
If we look at a board like 10-3 Deuce Flush Draw, we will see that a low Flush Draw with no combo draw doesn't raise very often at all. Like 8-6 of spades, for example, virtually never raises. But 5-4 of spades with the open-ended straight draw and the Flush Draw does want to push that equity, so it's going to raise more often. I got a quick question around that. What about Flush Draws that have a pair? So you said like 10-3-2 with a Flush Draw. What if you have like 3-4, so middle pair and a Flush Draw, or maybe you know, king three, middle pair, and a high flush draw. Do those hands like to raise, or do they kind of call because of their added showdown value with that pair? We'll talk about those three types of hands. We've got king three, three, four, and eight, six on 10, three, deuce flush draw. King three going to raise really often, you know, second up flush draw, unblocks a lot of flush draws, got a pair to go with it, lots and lots of equity. Four, three going to raise more often, uh, less often than king three, I should say but still way more often than 8-6. So you kind of treat your you know, your pair plus your low flush draw kind of like your combo draws in a way, i.e. you want to raise them a lot more than your 7-high flush draw with no straight draw, no pair, no nothing. Those, you know, 6-high, 7-high, really poor flush draws that don't have any straight draws to go with them, they raise very, very infrequently, and then you build from there. Yeah, that makes sense. I want to touch on one thing before we move on to our last spot. Throughout this episode, we've said that pretty much every flush draw plays a mixed strategy in most spots, you know, betting and raising sometimes and checking and calling the rest of the time. And it's based on, you know, the properties of that flush draw. Gary has said a few times, you know, you have the low kicker, you're going to play it aggressively more often. You have the high kicker, you're going to play it passively more often. Combo draws played aggressively more often, all of that. And if you look at these spots at equilibrium, you're supposed to play, say, an 80% bet strategy with one flush draw, a 20% bet strategy with the other. It's kind of a lot to memorize, and if you have high poker ambitions, if you're trying to really succeed at a high level in this game, play high stakes, that is what you're going to have to do. You have to have a robust, tough strategy like that. But I do just want to present the option if you're a player who's kind of focused on playing like 1-3 or 2-5 live, maybe 25 NL online. You can keep your strategy simple and just always bet the flush draws that really like to bet and always check the flush draws that really like to check, right? That's a pretty reasonable way to simplify. You're going to be costing yourself some EV in theory, but that's okay because you're keeping your strategy simple and you're going to execute it better. Yeah, absolutely. I remember when I started you know, randomizing and Sarah, it's really daunting at first and it can be very overwhelming. And as Mike has just said, sometimes, a lot of the time, a simplified strategy is actually higher EV because if you're confusing yourself and overwhelming yourself, you're not going to play the strategy correctly and you're going to you know, make mistakes, which actually cost you EV. So my advice to you is to keep your strategy as simple as possible, i.e., okay, if my global frequency is low, I'm going to always check Ace-King, but I'm always going to bet Ace-3. That's completely fine. I think it is, however, important to start randomizing so it is something that you can slowly add to your game. Particularly if you're playing online, you can have a randomizer on your screen. Obviously, if you're playing live, you can't do that. And you start to just slowly randomize. Okay, this combo I'm going to bet 80% of the time and so on and so forth. Because randomizing is such an important part of the game in this day and age, not just with the topic we're discussing today. And it is something that you need to implement into your own game, but it's something you must start slowly with. The last thing you want to do is try and execute a complicated strategy, get it wrong, butcher it, and cost yourself EV as a result. So yeah, that is all to say, probably best to keep your strategy simple if you're listening to this, but you can always graduate to implementing those mixed strategies later on, and you definitely should if you have high ambitions in poker. So that was all good stuff. The last common spot to cover is playing as the preflop caller in position. Suppose a player raises from whatever position and you call on the button. How are you playing your flush draw versus a C-bet? 
It's a little different here because in this spot, our range is much narrower than other spots and therefore it's doing a little better. Let's say we flat the button versus MP and the flop is king, six, deuce. We raise all of our flush draws at some frequency, but again, we want to raise more aggressively with our nut flush draws and our second nut flush draws for very obvious reasons. We've mentioned it many a time in this podcast, and it is really important. We don't want to bloat the pot with a six high flush draw when our opponent's range contains tons of nine high, ten high, jack high, etc. flush draws. So we want to be a little more passive with those six high flush draws, but we do want to raise them at some frequency. However, with our, you know, our ace three suited, ace four suited, those nut flush draws with the weaker kickers, they tend to play way more aggressively because we want to flush over or flush our opponent as much as possible. Let's get into the habit of playing slightly more passively with our weaker flush draws and more aggressively with our stronger flush draws and our low combo draws. What about versus a check? I assume you'd bet some flush draws while checking others, depending on the board. Can you speak to that? Yeah, you bet all your flush draws at some frequency, but really consistent stuff here. Your strongest flush draws bet way more often, especially the ones with the lowest kickers. Really important, we're finding a bet with all of our flush draws here at some frequency as our range is so strong and our range can support stabbing really wide here. And hopefully you guys are getting into the habit of knowing which flush draws are better to bet and therefore want to bet more often. Let's get into every live poker player's favorite topic, multi-way pots. I'll ask you a very general question, and then we'll just see where the discussion takes us. I think that's best for multi-way pots because they're so amorphous and hard to kind of nail down. So Gary, what are your considerations when playing flush draws in multi-way pots? So a really good piece of advice when you're playing multi-way pots, you want to see that a whole lot less often in general. The reason for this is that when there are more players in the pot, you have less equity. Therefore, you see bet less frequently. There's two things I want to talk about here. First things first, there's only 100% equity that can be shared among all the players in the pot. So if you're heads up and you're the preflop aggressor, you're generally going to have an equity advantage. However, when there are three players in the pot, that 100% equity is spread across three players. When there's four players in the pot, your equity goes down. Five, you know, we've all played live poker. You can be eight ways to the flop sometimes. The more players in the pot, the less equity you have. And in all of poker, when you've got less equity, you tend to put less money in the pots, therefore your c-betting frequency is going to come down. So if we're betting less frequently with our entire range, how are we going to play our flush draws? We're going to bet them way less frequently and even more so with our eight high flush draws, our seven high flush draws, and we're going to focus on having more equity. Generally, when you're playing multi-way, you don't c-bet that often and your quote-unquote bluffs, you want to have higher equity bluffs. So your nut flush draws, your second nut flush draws, they're going to be preferred along with your combo draws, as we've spoken about already, of course, compared to your seven high flush draw with no straight draw, your six high flush draw with no pair or straight draw, and so on and so forth. Yeah, so I think it'll be helpful for our listeners to kind of just think about a multi-way example scenario here. Imagine you raise with eight, seven of hearts in like the low jack in a live game. Cutoff calls, the button calls, small blind calls, and the big blind calls. So you go five ways to the flop, right? Not super unusual for live poker. Probably some two loose ranges in there, but let's put that to the side. Let's say the flop comes something like queen 10 3 with two hearts. So you have an eight high flush draw with your eight seven of hearts. The action checks to you. C betting in this spot with the eight high flush draw is kind of a disaster because if you think about it, you're up against four ranges, all of which include many, many superior flush draws. You know, they're going to have ace x suited, king 10 suited, suited connectors like jack 10 suited, 10 9 suited, some suited gappers like jack 9 suited. If you're playing live poker against really loose, splashy opponents, they might even have those like weird jack 4 suited, 10 5 suited. So there are just so many flush draws that are better than yours in this situation that your opponents could potentially have, and very few worse ones. Once in a while, you'll get lucky, they'll have the 6 5 of hearts, but that's not likely, right? So just imagine you bet in that spot, get called in two spots, and the turn is a heart, 
it kind of doesn't even feel that good, right? Because they're going to have a flush draw pretty often. You know, again, you might get lucky and one of them has a pair and the other one has a straight draw. And then, you know, you're in, you're in good shape. You still won't get that much value, though, for what it's worth. But what's going to happen quite often is one of them is going to have, you know, Jack Nine of Hearts and you're on the wrong side of a cooler scenario. So you can kind of just avoid all of that by checking on the flop, keeping the pot smaller. You know, if the heart comes, you are still going to lose a substantial amount of money but you're going to lose a lot less, right? And then when you actually are betting, it's going to be because you have that ace five of hearts or whatever it is that actually dominates the other flush draws. So when the pot does get big on that third heart, you're going to have the better side of it. All right, so I really like to wrap up these podcasts with kind of a quick addendum for tournament players. You know, you've listened to this whole podcast. If you play tournaments, we appreciate you listening. We want to give you a little something. So one thing I think tournament players really need to focus on when playing flush draws that kind of hasn't been touched on throughout the rest of the episode is being aware of stack sizes, and in particular, the possibility of facing an all-in raise and being forced off of your equity. So for example, let's say you have a 20 big blind stack, or your opponent has a 20 big blind stack, and you have a middling flush draw or something like that. Even if it's a high global frequency board, so you should be c-betting quite often in theory, you're going to actually find that those middling flush draws are going to play better as a check a good amount of the time, because if you do bet, your opponent's going to have the chance to raise, potentially raise all in, and you're going to be forced to fold the equity of your flush draw. So just a specific example, let's say you raise from the cutoff with 8-7 of hearts, we'll use that hand again, the big blind calls, the flop comes, let's say, king, six, deuce, another high-frequency c-bet board that we've used several times in this podcast, I think. You're supposed to be c-betting that board very often. In a cash game especially, I think you'd c-bet it basically 100% of the time. In a tournament, that frequency is going to be high as well. However, at that 20 big blind stack depth, you're going to have to be careful with certain hands. You know, if you have that 7-8 of hearts and you bet, they can potentially just rip it all in and force you to fold your equity, and you probably had at least like 30% equity against their shoving range. So what you're going to find performs better is checking back with those flush draws that really don't want to face a raise. I would still bet like ace five of hearts in that scenario, because if they jammed on me, I'm fist pump calling, right? They might have a worse flush draw. Even if they do have a pair or whatever, I have good equity. But when you have those ones that really don't want to be forced to fold and could potentially face a jam if you play aggressively, you're probably going to want to play it passively. So the big takeaway there in tournaments with your flush draws, be extra aware of stack sizes and the possibility of being shoved on. You really don't want to get forced off that equity. Now you know how to play your flush draws better and hopefully make a bunch of extra money or avoid losing extra money in your next session. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it or like it, subscribe, any way you can engage on the platform you're listening. If you're listening on one of those podcast platforms, giving us a five-star rating and sharing your thoughts on the show would be much appreciated. If you're watching on YouTube, hit that like button, subscribe. On any platform, please follow and subscribe to make sure you get notified about future episodes so we can keep this thing going for as long as possible. And if you have any topic suggestions for future episodes or just any general strategy questions, you can tweet them out with the hashtag UPLevelUp. That's like upswing poker level up, UP level up. Or you could just tweet at Gary and I. Feel free to tag us. 
We are very responsive. We've answered a lot of questions. In fact, if you just go on the YouTube comments of each of these episodes, you'll see a solid back and forth. You might be able to pick up a little extra value there. And of course, keep in mind, we are putting this out on a bunch of different platforms. So if you've been listening to every episode, keep in mind, you can go over to YouTube, Upswing Poker, and watch some episodes with a nice visual aid to kind of help cement your knowledge. And if you're watching on YouTube, keep in mind, you can listen to the show while you're driving or commuting or whatever. It's on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, all those platforms. We're trying to make it as easy as possible for you to get and consume this show because we know it's going to help you win more money at poker. So with all that said, thanks for listening. Take care.